The Boys Don't Try podcast, episode one, The Engagement Myth. Okay, welcome to the Boys Don't Try podcast. Um, firstly, I would like to thank everybody so much for all the positive feedback. The response uh, has been fabulous and we've been really pleased to see you all sharing the link with colleagues and, and tuning in with what we're doing here. And as you'll see later in the episode, we want to be as interactive as possible. So it is brilliant that you're all engaging. You pleased with the response, gents? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's been brilliant to get feedback. Um, we, we, we like suggestions. We like questions. So, yeah, please, please keep on uh, bringing your ideas and your suggestions forward to us. Yeah, I mean, I, I like feedback, but I more than feedback, I I do just prefer compliments. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, that's the unmistakable voices of Mark Robertson and Matt Pinkett, of course, authors of uh, Boys Don't Try, the book about rethinking masculinity in schools. Uh, my name is James Trapp. Um, and I'm the one who's bullied these two into doing this whole thing and uh, and uh, hopefully they don't hate me too much for that and you can put up with my witterings as well. Um, okay, let's before we go any further because although the, the response has been very very good to, for the uh, for the podcast before we go any further we need to talk about the elephant in the room, which is Matt's potty mouth which <laughs> has upset a, upset a few people following the pilot um, yeah so. Uh, just so we're clear, so a few people have suggested that the few swear words I said was an attempt to sound cool or be down with the kids, or that it was just inappropriate. Now, I, I, I don't know what you guys think. I, firstly, I want to go on record as saying swearing is cool. Swearing is one of those things that was cool at six years old. And I, I definitely just feel cooler when I swear. I, I don't trust people that don't swear. Like, what do they do? What, what do they do when they trade on Lego? People that don't swear. <laughs> well, I think they do swear, swear. But I think, I think their argument would be that on a podcast such as this, um, is there any need to? And I think that that's probably the argument. I, I don't have a particular problem with it. I think it shows. A level of authenticity would be, or you, you I'm going to say you specifically, Matt, because Mark or I didn't utter a, a bad word throughout the whole pilot. I'm not sure about that. I'm sure. You. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I'm sure Mark. Mark said something. Mate, well, I mean, not, I, 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 as, as a 16 year old, I used. I went. I left school and went to work in a factory for four years. And in the factory that I worked in, calling someone a c word was just kind of like, "How you doing, mate?" It was just. It was just every part of. <laughs> Of normal, comp- it was like saying to someone, you know, hello, I like your socks, something like that. It was just, it was just part of the everyday thing. For me, playing in playing in football teams, I, I, I mean, football changing rooms. My football team that I played with for most of my career, everybody's nickname was some form of derivation of a swear word. It was, it's just, it is. I mean, everybody's, um, and so I think it's just part of our of of our. Psyche, isn't it? It's just part of it. Has been playing on my mind, you know. I do respond to feedback, um, and I actually had a listen. I had a listen to the first episode about 100 times. Um, I think going forward, what I think we do need to come to some consensus as to what's allowed. Um, I personally, I would be uh loathed to start censoring what we say in some way. I think when we set out to do this. We wanted it to feel like three fellas kind of having a chat, didn't we? And that's not going to be authentic if we're all watching our P's and Q's. I that's think the, the other thing personally. is that we are we're English teachers, and we're we're very much aware of the importance of code switching, the idea of context, the idea that just because we we're chatting like this in a, a more informal um, discussion around the, the, this great work of art that we've written, um, we're also. <laughs> We're also aware that we, we are professionals and we do not use this kind of language anywhere other than um, in the staff room. Well, that's it, isn't it? That's the other thing. Yeah. It's, it's like, I think, you know, the your frequency of swear words is a poor proxy for your character. I was looking at, have you seen that stuff that Rob Drummond's done this week? So Rob Drummond is a linguist and he's really interested in swearing. Um, and he has published today, in fact, funnily enough, 
um, a lovely li- you can go to swearing.info it is all right on, on the world wide web swearing.info and he's just published this lovely little results of this survey he's done on swearing um, and so obviously um, first off you can see a graph that tells you um, the most offensive swear word the least offensive swear word is bloody so I mean and bloody on average um, out of 10 people to over 2,000 people were rated that at about one one and a half for offensiveness out of 10 so I think we can keep bloody I think if I say oh it's bloody brilliant people are still going to think oh look at that Matt guy he's such a rebel um, such a maverick but also, they're not going to be too offended. So I think okay. we keep bloody. I think any any other swear words that just come out, we just put a little beep or a little bit of um, a bird song over it. Mm. One one other final thing I'd say is that when we get to chapter six and chapter nine, when we look at some of the the specific things about language, I think we are going to have to address some of these more fruity uh, uses of verbiage as well. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I'd like to say bloody is okay, right? I think we, we, we say all the other stuff and we birdsong it or bleep it, but we all agree now that we're not going to say any swear word that isn't in the bottom four of Rob Drummond's offensive list. So we're not saying... <laughs> oh, I'm going to be using a lot of birdsong there. Um, okay, so the first chapter of the book, um, the engagement myth, um, was your work, Mark. And I think what struck me immediately when I read this chapter, it was first of all, the first question I have actually is how carefully did you think about which chapters you put where in the book? Because the the first that first chapter resonated so much with my own experience that i was immediately hooked uh, and and devoured the book in a, in less than a day and i'm and i and was that a tactical choice i mean i, I knew that it was uh, it was quite a, a strong powerful chapter I, I think it's always been my favorite chapter really um, mark, and the way that we the, sorry on. mark I, i'm going to let you take the lead on this but yeah. I remember exactly where we were and what we were doing when we. It was decided. the walk. It was the walk, wasn't it? Yeah, from from the flat yeah. to the train station. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, we were on a walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. I'm going to let Mark take the lead on this, um, <laughs> mainly because I should, but also because um, even then, even then, when we were deciding the chapter like order, Mark was the boss. He was like, right, this is this has got to come here. This has got to come here. And I just said, yeah. <laughs> Go on, Mark. <laughs> I, I don't think it was that clear cut. But, uh, but no, I mean, I, I, I felt that this, this chapter acts as a bit of a springboard for a lot of other stuff that comes. Um, not just in, in terms of the, the kind of what we, we tend to term as the academic chapters as opposed to the pastoral chapters. I know they obviously overlap. Um, but we, we really felt that if, if you kind of get your head around this, this is really where a lot of the the, the rethinking uh, in the subtitle of the of the, the book uh, comes from. It was it was very much if you if you understand this kind of God, I was going to say paradigm shift there, but that sounds really. Um, I was going to use one of those words that you can't use. You can there. say RC. Um, you can say RC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was it's kind of like this big fundamental change to your teaching worldview. You once you get that, you, you, everything else kind of comes from it. And you went through that yourself, didn't you? I mean, uh, the, what, you, cha- you you were a champion of an awful lot of the things that you, you debunk in the book. Oh, God, yeah. Um, yeah. But this was a big, big shift for you, wasn't it? You you yeah. spent many years being the boy guy in yeah. uh, in the schools and yeah. and doing an awful lot of the stuff you, you debunk. So what do you think led you to that conclusion? Because epiphanies aside, that's, yeah. it's, it's a big old shift there, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, I'd, I'd gone as far as to write a blog. The first ever blog I wrote when I when I joined Twitter, which probably about six years ago or something, um, was actually a blog that was was full of these engagement st- strategies, and it was kind of like promoting them and celebrating them. And yeah, I suppose I, I use the word epiphany, but it wasn't really. It's, it's always this kind of slow, gradual realization where something's gnawing away at the back of your brain, and then suddenly one day it all 
com- just comes together, coalesces, and just smacks you in the brain. And all of a sudden, you say, "Ah, right." And I think the thing that, that confused me is that I, I, as a teacher, um, even in the early part of my career when I was using these crazy strategies. I was still getting really good results with boys and, and, and for that reason I was kind of like well everything I'm doing must work everything that I'm doing must be right and I think that the epiphany was kind of like ah I'm getting these results and I'm doing well with these kind of um, kids despite these strategies not because of them and that was the thing that, that really whacked me. So Mark how did you I get I get all that but like, how did you realise that you were doing it despite those strategies the short answer is reading blogs and journal papers written by people smarter than me and having these but i wasn't on twitter at that time (laughs) no no you were nothing to do with that (laughs) no you were you were one of the people who, who certainly um certainly challenged my thinking about masculinity and about the way that we teach boys and, and I mean, I've said this before, but I, I, it was kind of like a, it became a little bit of competitive to begin with, where I'd read your stuff and I'd be really fascinated and intrigued and, and sometimes disagreeing with stuff. But at the same time, I was like, um, what's he doing? Like, uh, you know, treading on my toes, getting on my boy territory. Uh, and then we had to join forces to kind of to, to avoid that. But yeah. no, it, it, and it, yet it, it didn't it, go it, away though, did it, Mark? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's still like I'll send you my yeah. chapter. Oh, that's good, Mark. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Have you read mine yet? Have you read mine yet? <laughs> it's very. Um, it's getting very Lennon McCartney, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, so let, can we talk about some of the things specifically then, Mark, that, that you felt? needed debunking in terms of the way we had always approached uh, uh, teaching boys. Um, do you want to start with, with competition? Because yeah. that's one we were all told when we were training. Yeah. Um, got to get boys competitive. That's the way to, to make them learn. It, it just makes sense, doesn't it? it? It's just one of those things that you think, well, well boys are competitive. And, and if you look at the research, the research suggests, yes, that, that is true. Whether that's the way that we socialise them or whether this is some kind of inherent instinctive thing, it's, it's probably a discussion for another day. Um, but you, when you think about that, and, and I'm really competitive myself, and all my brothers are, and, and, and lots of my, my mates who I know who are boys are really competitive too. And it just, to me, it just seemed to make perfect sense that, that if you've got boys who are switched off and they're not particularly interested in, in subjects, particularly subjects like mine, English, that's seen as, as you know, traditionally feminine subjects, uh, it just made sense to think, okay, well, we'll let's give a bit of competition in, into it and it'll make them want to raise their game or make them want to do everything to try to beat others. Now, you you snuck something in there a little under the radar that I'd like to focus on for a moment, if that's yeah. right. You, you described our subject then as effeminate. And um, Matt and I had a long conversation about this when I interviewed him for my other podcast about why in my school, as, a, as an example, we have 35 a, uh, A-level literature students and only two of them are boys. Is there a problem with the way we approach certain subjects? I, I think that that is a really big question. And I think that, that there's probably another, another separate podcast in that. There's probably something that, that we, yeah. can, we can return to that in a lot of detail. My, my short answer is that it comes down to to the way that these kind of anti-school attitudes that are tied up with, with kind of traditional forms of masculinity, no matter how much we, we put into them trying to give them the love of the subject, for some, those stereotypes that are really writ large and are going to influence the way that they approach things like reading, for example, which is obviously a key part of our, um, our subject. So I, I think we, yeah. we can certainly go into that, but it, it's, there's, there's no doubt that it plays a part. Okay, you're absolutely right. We'll put that on hold for a, for a later a later discussion. Um, okay, so what else? We talked about competition. What what's the problem with competition in your eyes? Then why is it? Why is oh, it? Oh yeah, we, we I, I made we it sound. We didn't get that. I made it sound good, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the big problem, um, and and the, there's a there's a massive massive issue with this, is that in using competitive strategies, what you end up doing is switching off the boys who are already struggling. Because they're not stupid, they recognise quite quickly whether they're going to win at something or not. And if they're not going to win, they withdraw from their work 
as what um, Carolyn Jackson calls a self-worth protection strategy uh, that's building on the work of Martin Covington. Um, and it's this idea that when they recognise that they're, they're going to fail, particularly when they're competing against their peers, especially girls, they think, OK, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to duck out. I'm not going to take part in your competition. Or, or even worse, I'm going to sabotage the, um, the, the competitors. And that tends to what happens. It tends yeah. to happen that the more, the more you introduce it, the more it becomes an issue. Mm. And, and girls do do this too, but, but boys are more likely to do it than girls. Why is that? Absolutely. Pressure on men to be James Bond all the time, you know. Like, <laughs> but you know, you know, um, you know. Martin Covington said, um, although they might not act like it's worth anything, um, academic ability is the most valuable commodity in in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And all boys, the research says, you know, they they might not act like it, but they want a piece of that. But like Mark's just said, if they feel that they're not going to get a piece of that. Why bother trying? What you know, if you fancy, you know, Julie, you know, across the room there, or Adam across the room, why would you put yourself out there to fail? Not only in front of your peer group, right, who are going to call you a nerd anyway for trying, um, but you know, why? Why would you make yourself look like an idiot? Especially when, if you're good at something else, you can get your competitive kicks somewhere else and you can be a winner there. If you know you're not going to win in, in a particular classroom, in a particular subject, you're just going to opt out. Yeah, I mean, you can go home and get on the Xbox and beat everyone at Call of Duty. Or you can go on the playground and score 10 goals on on, on, on the football pitch. Or you can, you know, you can be the, the funny guy. You're the funniest person on the playground or, you know... Yeah, you're the one that always finds the dirtiest pornography. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's all, there's a lot, um, there's a lot of easy ways for boys to win competitions, and um, what happened? The competitions posed in the classrooms are just not worth the effort for a lot of boys. Yeah. It's really tough. Or for some, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. That's dealt with competition. We'll all never do that again. Um, what else, Mark? What are, what are the other what are the other big issues that you find with it in the ways that we have traditionally taught boys over the last mm. twenty to thirty years? It, I spe- the idea about making things relevant to their lives, trying to have boy friendly curricula, um, is something I, sp- I spent a lot of time in the early part of my career trying to do this. Thinking, okay, well, if I'm teaching a group of boys and they're not remotely interested in in learning about, um, I don't know, similes and metaphors, and if I bring in a football report or if we look at a kind of a, a, a review of a new grime album or the latest Xbox offering or something like that, um, if we do this, this will again make them want to raise their game it will inspire them to, to become interested in it and there's many many reasons why this common sense approach is counterproductive uh the big one really is that boys don't like all this, all like the same things yeah and we forget that don't yeah. we you know the, totally lump them in you all like shoot them up yeah you? so we're going to review exactly. a shoot, we're going to look at a shoot them up yeah. review yeah god yeah. how many times have i taught that lesson yeah, yeah so that's that, that's <laughs> that's 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 the biggie um, from that, uh, overlapping towards that, is, is this idea that the stuff that you end up assuming that boys like is stereotypical stuff, which is the things you're trying to counteract in the first place. You're usually going against this idea that boys don't like reading. Therefore, let's give them a book about uh, reading a book about football, uh, and therefore that'll hook them into it. You, you're narrowing the curriculum down, and you're kind of saying you're a boy. This stuff's all that you can cope with. You can't cope with Dickens. You can't cope with with learning about uh, complex uh, physical formula. We're just going to do, uh, I don't know, football physics or something. If you go down that route, you, you're very much narrowing the cu- curriculum. You're hindering their opportunities of accumulating cultural capital. And you're saying, you know, you're a boy. This is all that you're good for. Mm. It's, it's, well, I'm having the same reaction now as I did when I first read the chapter. Uh, looking back over my own practice and hanging my head in shame, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I was I was te- uh, had a text conversation with Matt earlier about how I described one lesson where I tried to recreate the uh, scene from Dead Poet Society where he takes them out, makes them read a line of poetry, and then kick a ball. I've done that lesson, and yeah. in the in a way that with a bottom set group of all lads trying to say, look, if you, if if you say it with gusto and then go and kick a ball, it's going to mean more. I don't know mm-hmm. what I was doing. 
Other than trying to no. be John Keating from Dead Poets Society, I suppose. <laughs> Matt, you, you, you must have done something like that, Matt. You must have ever a, a played a part in this. The thing I hate is that snowballing thing. Have you heard that? You know, where you get kids to write answers. Rather than they write answers or questions in their book, or just put their hand up and give you a question, they write them on pieces of paper, screw them up, and then throw them at you. <laughs> because, because boy, because boys, because boys are very active learners, and that's a lot. And that's a bit close um, to war, isn't it? As well, and that's yeah, yeah. No, I, I do, I do remember one lesson, um, or actually a, a scheme of work, actually over six weeks, where I had like a boost, a booster literacy group, year elevens, um, uh, and it was mainly boys. Um, not all boys. There was like four girls in there, maybe ten, ten boys, and. Um, at the time, that uh, a documentary called Class of 92, yeah. uh, all about Alex Ferguson and David Beckham, Nicky Butt and all the rest of them. Um, a documentary about about how Alex Ferguson brought them up through the ranks and stuff. Um, and basically, for no other reason than I like Man United and my class had 10 boys and I thought, well, I'll do a writing scheme based around this documentary. I saw them twice a week. We'd spend half an hour... Or, whatever 20 minutes watching this documentary and then i'd like had these really weird writing tasks related to the documentaries so and one imagine of them was your gary Neville. listen worse than that worse than that worse than that one of them was um imagine your ryan giggs's mum right <laughs> <laughs> Imagine you're Ryan Giggs's mum. Write a letter to Alex Ferguson. Um, um, yeah, it was something like asking him to 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 to, to, to get more money out of the contract for Ryan or something. And the kids were like, firstly, they were like, "Sorry, who's Ryan Giggs?" It was, <laughs> it was like, "Oh." <laughs> He used We're to be. Need a, to watch it again. <laughs> he used to be a quite good footballer. Okay, yeah. sir. And so you're asking us to pretend we're his mum, and I'm like, yeah. And they go, but, but but his mum isn't famous or anything. No, and he's 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 a famous footballer, but we're pretending that he's not famous, and that which you know it was a <laughs> it was this, a bizarre. And, was- there was six weeks of this. And I remember, like you know, and I just wanted to watch the documentary, really, um, yeah. you know, and um, yeah, you know, we spent ten minutes doing these horrible writing tasks. It was, yeah, it was disastrous. It leads us, it leads us on to a point that Daniel Willingham makes, where he talks about uh, content not driving in, not driving interest. Um, this this idea that that because. We are interested in the topic. We're automatically going to like one of these tasks that we get given, uh, and and actually it can be quite the opposite. We can find ourselves absolutely hooked in something that we felt we had no interest in before. I, I, someone get, for Christmas gave me a book about a group of guys in the nineteen sixties um, trying to have this race sailing around the world. I knew nothing about sailing. Not remotely interested in sailing. Don't like going on boats. Get seasick. Not interested one bit. And I read this book. It's one of the most gripping books I've ever read. Mm. Um, and that, that just goes to show that, that trying to feed content and assuming it will do the interest is not the right way to go. Good stuff. <clears throat> okay, then. Um, I mean, can I ask what your experience is of, of other subjects doing this sort of thing? Because we need to accept that in, in this uh, virtual room we've got going at the minute, we have a bit of an English bias. Um, is this a problem that other subjects face as well? Yeah, it's pretty endemic from from what I've seen. Um, I, I, I suppose I watched quite a few maths lessons over the years. Um, pizza, fractions, yeah, pizza, fractions, pizza. and pizza. Uh, I, I think you'll find it's pi, pi r squared, Matthew. What's that? <laughs> you'll find it's pi r squared. <laughs> yeah, you can do c- circumference and diameter as well. You can do, can't you? That's it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but no, the, the probability, different coloured Smarties, stuff like that. What's the probability of the next Smartie that you're going to eat is going to be a particular colour? Uh, things like that. There's something I always say at these talks, right? Um, so so a teacher comes in, they've got to teach fractions, or what was that you just said, pi r squared? 
Yeah, you know? the circumference. And so, all right, let's do it. So they get they they come in. They got the pizza there, right? All the kids are salivating. They measure the radius of the pizza and the circumference of it, and they do all the maths, and then they eat the pizza. And the teacher comes out going, "That was the best maths lesson I've ever taught." The kids loved it. It was right. If it worked, if that worked, right? If pizza was a way of teaching pi r squared or fractions, why is not every single maths lesson in the country, in the world, using pizzas to teach that? Right? If it's worked once, yeah, if you had this one amazing lesson, why are you not doing it for every single lesson, every single year group where you're discussing fractions? And money ain't an answer, right? I've seen those pizzas. You can pick them up for one, you know, 99p Waitrose, best, you know, Waitrose Essentials or whatever it is. Check right? you out with your Waitrose. Yeah, well, <laughs> Waitrose Essentials. The accent's a sham, wor- isn't it? <laughs> I'm working class, you know, Mark. <laughs> right? <laughs> I've been down Waitrose, right? You can pick up a perfectly good avocado pesto and aubergine pizza right? <laughs> for one... Right, you can pick one of them up for one ninety nine. Right, if 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 the results of using pizza in math lessons were that good, why aren't we doing it every bloody math lesson every week with every? Do you know what I mean? And we're not. Yeah, and it ain't because it doesn't that, work. Because it don't work. Uh, the other thing that we might not want to say, but we we have to say, we're gonna have to talk about VAK, aren't we? Oh, yeah. God, VAK. How many lessons Active did learning. I have boys running around the classroom with a post it note? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll tell you the one I liked. Like I bet some some people did VAK really well, you know, this idea so for for those that aren't in the know, um <laughs> lucky you. Um yeah. but there's this there's a pervasive myth that boys only learn or, or learn better, if that if that works, um, when they're being active. Now, I bet some people did that beautifully. Like, got kids doing plays and all that. Whenever I had to do kinesthetic learning, right, for the boys, what I did was, basically, I used to get my worksheet, yeah, with all the information on it. I used to take the paragraphs and separate them onto separate worksheets, blow them up onto A3, stick these A3 sheets around the room and go, right, there's some sheets around the room on the walls, Go round, look at them, and just write stuff down. Mm-hmm. And that was them being yeah. active, get getting up, walk, like literally getting off their desk and walking to the wall. When obviously in reality, what I should have just done was just given the worksheet. Yeah, VAK was responsible for killing a lot of trees, wasn't it? Um, card sorts, that kind of thing, moving moving around and giving feedback as you as you wander, that kind of stuff. And it's interesting though because although VAK in itself has largely been debunked. It, what it, we're still finding some of these things being considered useful. I think I think trainees today are still being told, "Oh, a card sorts a good idea. breaks breaks up your learning. You don't just want to sit there, sit there writing the whole time." Um, have we got to do more here? Yeah. The the problem is is that we we know that VOK has been debunked. Um, a lot of people who are on Edu Twitter, a lot of people who go to research ed conferences and things like that, know. Um, Teacher Tap did a, a, I think it was a, it, about a year ago, eighteen months ago. They they did a question about it, and sixty eight percent still said that they they strongly believed that VAK was a thing. I think I'm right. Figures around that. Uh, only a couple of years before that, the Guardian had run a, a feature where they they'd said about eighty percent of teachers still believed that VAK was was a a useful way of teaching students. So I, I think it's wrong to think that the that the job is done. And and there's a few examples that I cite in the chapter of of, of certain um, PGCE courses that are teaching kids it. But I think even if we move away from from the worst excesses of VAK, I think this idea that about boys needing to move around, boys not being able to concentrate for a certain amount of time is still very pervasive. And I think it still runs through the whole idea of the concept of engagement in the first place. The the idea that you can see active learning, you can see progress taking place. Uh, And and even if we get away from the nightmare days of having VAK written on a lesson plan, it's still there in essence in a lot of lessons. Yeah, and that's that's still a problem. But there are other things, aren't there, Mark? I want to, let's do the list while we can. What things do you think are still taking place in lessons that you didn't get into the book? 
Are there are there still are there things other things that are still staple uh, parts of a of a lesson mm. that yeah. are actually being problematic in terms of engaging boys? Yeah, I, I wanted to do about seven chapters on engagement. Which, didn't <laughs> yeah. I? At one point, you had yeah, to say, yeah. "No, no, you've got one chapter. Move <laughs> on." It could have it could have been like yeah, a, a ninety thousand word opus. Um, one of the one of the key things that I think, and it, it's related to the idea of, of active learning, is pace. Uh, and this is something that I know you've written about before, Matt, haven't you? The, the, the idea of pace, and you, you blogged on it. Do you want to say what your issue is with pace? Pace? Oh, yeah, this whole thing when people say you need more pace in your lessons or you need pace. I just think a bit like engagement, a bit like it's one of those terms that's fuzzy. Like <laughs> pace literally means, you know, the dictionary definition of pace is the rate at which something happens. So when you say to someone, when you know, when someone observes a lesson of an NQT and says to that NQT, um, you need more pace in your lessons, I think, well, what do you mean? If do you mean more speed or do you mean less speed? If you mean more speed, say to them, I want your you know, I want your explanation of the Irish potato famine, right? I've recorded it. It was thirteen minutes and forty seven seconds. I think your your you know your kids will learn a lot more if you could increase the pace of that lesson. And if you could get it down to twelve minutes fifty two seconds, that would be really beneficial for the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, what I'm saying is, and I know I can't say the B word that rhymes with frolics. Frolics isn't a word, but um, uh, but arse is in the bottom four. So I think I think the term pace is just a load of arse. I think the, I think the example that you've given is a legitimate reason for saying to someone you need to speed up, and we we will have witnessed. Um, parts but if you want to, if you want people to speed yeah. up, right? Which again, yeah, I think just is say a, speed up. Just yeah. say speed up. But this word pace is too fuzzy. I mean, yeah. but because people and, and do you know why people use it? Because they don't want to say speed up. Because yeah. in the back of their mind, there's something niggling away saying there's something wrong about telling someone to speed up mm-hmm. the way they explain something or the is way the, yeah. do, do you know what i mean i do yeah. is, is this to do is this to do with the idea of of boys can't cope with concentrating for a long period of time and therefore we've got to yeah. do things quickly and in yeah. short chunks because yeah uh, i think yeah I, I think that's what i was going to say to mark i mean that was my little issue with pace but but yeah pace and chunking mark you've got yeah. you've got you've got stuff to say on that yeah, I mean, I think that when, when you're saying that you need to chunk stuff, what, what you're fundamentally saying to, to a teacher is boys can only cope with concentrating for a certain amount of time. Boys can only cope with doing a certain amount of writing. And then it leads to this kind of worksheet culture where you give them a little box and you, you fill in this box and then we'll move on to something else, uh, and which is very limiting in the expectations that you've got of what boys can produce. So that's a key part of it. Uh, and, and sometimes teachers do waffle on and sometimes um, it's obvious that kids have already grasped something and it's time to move on and you just need to crack on and get on with it. Um, and and I, think, I think it's Sean Allison who wrote a blog, um, I think it was last year, that was a really good summary of that, as saying that, that, that things take as long to explain or to instruct as, as they take. And that's what you should be talking about, maximising quality questioning, maximising quality explanations, not worrying about this kind of arbitrary speeding through because you think that boys are going to get bored. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I couldn't agree more. Is there a similar issue with the idea of, of group work? I mean, I don't want to sit here and debunk group work as a teaching method because I think it ha- there are some... Benefits, I think, from group work. But is is, is there an issue with too many no, people? No, sorry, pushing? James. I'll just sorry, James. You're wrong. <laughs> Am I? Go for it. <laughs> group work's crap. <laughs> no, I've, uh, no. I'm sure. I'm sure there is someone that's made it work somewhere. I, I mean, I, I just can't. Uh, I'm only joking, of course. Of course, it does have its the, benefits. But let Mark talk about group work, man, because I'll the issue. The issue, <laughs> the issue I have with it is that. Is that absolutely um, when you slag group work off, people say, "Well, what you're not, what you're really doing is slagging group work off when it's done badly." And, and there's a lot of truth in that. But to get group work done well, um, you have to spend a lot of time training the kids how to do it. And, and and I've seen it done brilliantly, and some people absolutely nail it. But the problem is, to me, it comes down to there's usually an opportunity cost in that, and and that time spent mastering these skills, which are important skills in life. Not not going to uh, deny that. 
is usually done at the expense of something else, and it's usually done with boys at the extent at the expense of like extensive extended writing and lots of deliberate practice and lots of independent practice, and that's something that I have a big issue with. When you look at the the research, I've been reading about some of this this week. Um, when you look at the research about if you ask boys, do you prefer learning in a group or learning individually? They get much more enjoyment out of learning as a group. But when you look at what they actually produce in terms of attainment, quality, and so on, they do a lot better when they work individually on their own. And that was a homework study, but I don't see why yeah. it should be it's, much different. It's in, a bit in, like in, this in podcast. Classroom. I'm sitting here listening to you two thinking, what could I achieve without these? <laughs> what could I? What could I? <laughs> That is charming. Oh, right. Okay, so... I'm only, people listening, people are listening thinking, no, he's holding Mark back. He's holding Mark back. <laughs> so, um, in the spirit of providing solutions, not problems then, what can we do about all of this? What 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 approaches should we be taking? I, can, I, can I jump in here? Yeah, you, you start, Mark. Yeah, I think... Um, I think making things, I think high challenge, I think, you know, I think competition and, and, and spending all your time in making something competitive, spending all your time in making something relevant, spending all your time in trying to get things active, um, all of that is time not spent um, thinking about how you can get the kids really thinking about the subject and really pushing kids you know regardless of whether whether, whether uh, of their gender or sex um I, I think subject knowledge is is hugely important um i always say i think too often subject knowledge amongst teachers um is is something that's assumed that we're meant to develop either before school and by before school i mean at university yeah yeah, yeah. or you know so you get your degree done or after school, all right? So you get into school at 7.30, you work a full day till, you know, 4 or 5 o'clock, then you go to the gym, then you, um, you know, you cook your dinner, then you, <clears throat> at some point, you're going to have to talk to your own kids, aren't you? But that can't be helped. You do that, you read them a, st- <laughs> you read them a story, you put them I'm just to one, bed. I'm just wondering in what world do you have time to go to the gym? <laughs> yeah, well, look at me, mate. I, I don't, I was trying- <laughs> <laughs> Call me out on it on the podcast, James. I, I ain't been for gym in months. Um, but you know, and then you know, you do all that, and then at nine o'clock, that's when you're supposed to go. Oh, do you know what? I'm going to read some Marxist criticism right now, or oh, I'm going to watch that podcast on Oxbow Lakes because I'm teaching. You know, it's. T- I think for too long. Um, subject development is assumed to be something that we're meant to do in our own time like when i first started all cpd all training sessions was about initiatives um how to input data on sims what are we going to do for parents evening i think schools are getting a lot better at giving teachers the time to do subject specific stuff um but i still think we could be better i still think we can do better you know um professor co robert is it robert co professor robert co rob yeah yeah rob co sorry all right the best teachers are the teachers who know their subject. Not not necessarily because they know more than somebody else, um, but because they're better able to spot possible misconceptions and address them. Right. So if we really want to engage students and we really want to engage them, we need to be providing them with more interesting stuff. And that means we need to become more expert in our subject. Um, I think... Schools can do one better than what they're currently doing, which is giving more time to subject development. And the way they can do that is by, I think, school leaders and department leaders need to be saying to um, teachers, actually, do you know what? You can work on your subject knowledge in the school day. Right? It sounds controversial, right? But you, you're you not meant to call them this. I call them free periods. People call them planning and prep time or, or, or some... I can't some ask right, but essentially it's a free period, right? As a, as a department uh, leader, it would give me pleasure to walk in on someone in my department, all right, sitting there with their feet up reading a book as an English teacher. 
you know what I mean? Developing this in the school day, all right? Um, And I I still think that there's a pressure when you do get free time to be inputting data, to be, um, I don't know, making, you know, planning lessons. And by, you know, and, and what most people mean by planning lessons is doing these bloody PowerPoints. Do you know what I mean? But actually, what's really going to do you well is actually developing your subject knowledge. And you've got a family. You can't do it at home, right? You qualified from university 10 years ago. So do you know what? When you get an hour free on a Monday, put your feet up and listen to that god-awful TED talk about Philip Larkin or whatever it is and develop your subject knowledge, all right? I think that's what... I think that's where we need to go. You'll, you'll like this one, Mark. I, I wrote something with a test on this, on this very subject uh, a, a few months ago. And I, the, the thing that I ended up doing, it was quite a cheesy little quote, but I was quite pleased with this. You know the Gary Player, um, famous South African golfer, who was seen as the one of the all-time greats? He had this this. I ain't got a clue who quote. he is, but I'm a man, so yeah. I'm going to say yes. Yes, <laughs> to say yes. Yes. <laughs> he, uh, he had a line I, that, that I is quite often. Yes, well done, James. <laughs> and uh, he said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And I, I changed it to the the more I read, the lazier I get uh, in, in terms of my teaching. Uh, because the, the more I've read stuff, I don't need to spend time trying to find these gimmicks. I can I can tell them about stuff that I know in a way that I make it interesting. Yeah, that's um, a really. But, but James, point, getting back, yeah, getting back to your your, your question that you, that, that you asked Mark uh, about engagement, about what we can do. One of the things that I'm determined, uh, and, I, and when I speak at, to schools about this, I'm determined to get across is that it would really help if we got rid of the word engagement in the first place. Because I think it's, whilst it's a useful metaphor for this idea of that they want to learn and that they're kind of locked into this focus and this interest, it's become corrupted in the same way that that when Mark talks about pace, it's become something that's gone beyond its use. Because the idea of engagement has become almost synonymous with entertainment, um, kind of, sneaking things in, hooking them in in some way, whereas... And also kids doing stuff, you know? Do you remember remember you used to show a YouTube video or a documentary and you used to do these worksheets for them to complete as they were watching the documentary? Well, how can you you give the, 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 the film clip or whatever it is any worthy attention if whilst you're watching it, your attention is split because you haven't filled out a worksheet? It's because you were worried that some somebody would come in and see them watching something and you assume that they're not engaged in some way. Um, and this idea of active learning, and it goes back to Rob Coe's poor proxies, doesn't it? This idea that unless you can see them kind of scribbling away, they're not actively engaged in some way. Uh, and that that's one one big thing I would, I would say. If we can try and get away from talking about that and, and just more thinking about progress as, as kind of them knowing more stuff over time, and being yeah. getting better at stuff over time, that that'd be a lot more useful. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, right. Well, I think I think we've we've this has been a good discussion about that particular chapter. Um, uh, thank you, Jens. <laughs> Shall we move on then to uh, some Twitter questions, listeners' questions? Um, this is. It. Hopefully, going to become a, a regular section as long as people keep tweeting in questions. And we've had to curate a little. We're probably, I mean, we've had a lot of questions. We're not going to be able to get to everybody's, and we apologise if yours isn't one of those. But uh, can we start with one um, from someone on Twitter calling themselves Miss D? Uh, how can we help to encourage and engage boys at leadership level? Um, the suggestion from her tweet is that she's a hoy. Uh, and is always being told she needs a male role model for this to happen, um, which must be frustrating. Uh, any thoughts on that, gents? We are, at the moment, thinking about role models a lot. And I think mm. it's a really complex issue that if you look at some of the, the basics about do teachers have to be a particular gender to impact on their students' attitudes. And the, the basic research seems to suggest it doesn't matter. All they, all they want is, is good role models who are good teachers. But I, I suspect that there's a bit more to it, and, and I think we're going to have a lot more to say about role models in the in the near future. What, what's your thoughts on that one, Matt? 
Yeah, I mean, it's something we always get asked. The, the, the thing that troubles me, so I'm really, I really love, uh, maybe I should remain in part, uh, maybe I should remain impartial, but I really love like the research picture on kind of attainment and um, that actually a teacher's gender makes no difference to, to, to attainment. And also actually boys don't really in terms of their achievement am i right mark in saying they they don't have a preference for for gender yeah and and also from a pastoral sense most of the research there there is that exception about when it comes to personal issues you know if you've got a, an issue about you know a very private matter kind of sexual nature something like that apart from those circumstances yeah they they they're, they're not fussed if they're speaking to a male or a female you know, just as a female student w- wouldn't want to go to a, a male teacher about maybe her period, um, a boy that watches lots of pornography um, and uh, is very upset because he's worried about the size of his penis <laughs> based on what he's seen on, you know, on the, you know, doesn't necessarily want to go and be telling, you know, his female teachers, I'm scared or I'm worried about the size of my penis, you know. Um, but apart from that, you know, attainment-wise, the gender of a teacher doesn't worry. But, Mark, you asked me what I thought about that, that, that kind of question. The, the question that we always get um, when we talk, uh, you, know, res- you know, research heads and stuff like that, is we get a lot of female teachers coming to us afterwards saying, look, totally on message with um, what you say in the book, but at the end of the day, because I'm female... I can, you know, I, I really try and make my boys as feminist as they can be. I try and get them to open up. But at the end of the day, um, they just see me as like a female nag or like this, you know, the female feminist that they 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 have a hostility towards, um, which is heartbreaking. So it's on our agenda, isn't it, Mark? It's something we're yeah, looking into. Yeah. If, if we're being honest, we, we don't have a, a, a concrete answer to that at this moment in time, but we, we've got hunches, but we're going to, yeah, we're going to think about this in a lot it's more a, detail. It's a massively complex issue, isn't it? I think uh, if you stick, stick with us, Miss D, we'll hopefully have an answer for you in the near future. Um, this next one's from uh, Chris R on Twitter, uh, and he sent us a headline. And the headline read, If you want boys to love languages, stop force-feeding them French, says a head. The article was essentially about uh, the head of an all-boys school um, who says that she only gives, uh, at junior level, one year of French to all her students alongside a year of Spanish, a year of German, and even a year of Mandarin. Um, is, is that going to be boy-friendly? What are our thoughts on that as a story? Should it even be a story? I'm not sure. That's not a story. I mean, when I went to school, I only did, you know, I did French for a year and then Spanish for a year. That's not a story, is it? I, I think that the, the the research I've been reading about languages recently um, suggests that there's this perception that boys struggle with, with the, the verbal aspects of the language and it might tie into that in some way. But actually, everything that I've been reading is when it comes down to it, boys do well in languages if they're motivated to do well in languages, and that usually comes from home and from peers. Uh, so I think that's far more important than the particular language that you're working on from my limited experience of reading around it. When we're talking about the differences between boys and girls and developing in terms of literacy and language, I mean, I've, I've been doing a bit of reading around this recently as well. We're talking like one or two months you know, so when you get this, uh, you know, boys develop later than girls in terms of their ability to express their feelings or to to articulate emotions, or to right. walk. Yeah, it's we're not talking. Yeah, or to walk, or to we're not talking years. We're talking like, you know, let's say in a school year, right? Girls can girls can articulate their feelings in. September, the boys will be able to do it in November. But this is what these these are fine mark. Like we're not talking, you know, girls. That's the phrase, isn't it? Girls mature. Girls mature two, three, four years before boys. It's it's months, and and even then, of course, not all boys um, mature later than all girls. Obviously, you know. But. This has been going around. I remember people saying that when when I was at school, and that's 
best part of 30 years ago. Yeah. And also, we know, you know, we know now all the work that Gina Rapon's done on, on neuroplasticity and all the rest of it. We know that if there is a deficiency in anything, well, you just practice it and then it develops. Mm. So... Yeah. <laughs> I think I think the problem Matt, is that these French teachers have been showing them um, class of ninety two and getting them to write a diary entry of Eric Cantona in French. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So, 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 sir, let let me get this right. So, I'm the football boot that kicks the Crystal Palace fan in the chest. <laughs> well, I think it's a time time to move on. Um, one more one more question from our our listeners. I, I do fear that this is another fairly sizable question that we're, we're barely going to scratch the surface with but um, this is from someone on Twitter calling themselves mother of staying at home how do we engage boys with neurodiversity for example dyslexia ADHD and autism is that a particular issue for us I mean my advice would always be as with any so if you get an autistic boy the issue there isn't the the issue is the wrong word the thing you shouldn't be focusing on there is the boy bit. It's the autism. You know? Uh, same with dyslexia. You know, dyslexic boy, ADHD boy. No, well, ignore the boy. Spend some time thinking about what works for autistic children or, you know, ADHD children. Um, that's, what, that's what you need to be focusing on. And, you know... Uh, as someone that works with autistic pupils, I would say that uh, I would say perhaps autistic boys could be more vulnerable than neurotypical boys to a lot of the things that we say neurotypical boys are susceptible to. So the toxic masculinity, um, uh, that sort of thing. Um, that, that, you know, there's the issue with um, social situations and stuff, and and kind of mimicking um, what others are doing, and and having less of a maybe a, a clearer clear idea of what is acceptable and what is not. Um, but 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 my advice, yeah, uh, try and take the gender out of it. Uh, I, I mean, the research again. I'm, I'm talking about autism here. Um, the research into masculinity and, and gender, uh, sorry, masculinity and autism, or, or being a male, and, and is is largely focused on the fact that so many more boys and girls are diagnosed as autistic. It's it's all kind of physiological, genetic research. Um, is the same is the same true of ADHD? I'm not sure to be honest. Um, we, I mean, we do know that boys are far more likely to be diagnosed with these things than girls, um, if diagnosed is, is, is the right word. And I, I think that's wrong. I think it's. I think there are there must be swathes of girls who are being written off as naughty. Um, in the case of ADHD, when actually they're they're probably ADHD, uh, there'll be autistic girls all over the world who are. Just, just not giving the support they needed because they're just quiet or, 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 or whatever, um, because that's what girls should be. When actually they have some probably quite significant um, uh, problems with social interaction and that sort of thing. Um, but, but, but in answer to the question, my my thing would be try and take the gender out of it initially. Um, and I would also say that there isn't a, res- a research picture out there currently um, that certainly that I have, have have been exposed to or that I could draw upon to that. Um, but certainly there's there's things that work for autistic children. Um, but I wouldn't say there's necessarily anything that we know works for autistic boys. I mean, I'd love to. I'd people. I'd love people to get in touch. And tell I me think if I'm wrong. That's or... what I was about to say. I think I think I think we need we need more data here, don't we? A, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit. So if people have um, have things of interest that that might illuminate, then um, please feel free to, to send us a tweet for any of the questions that we've had. If if there's anything that we're missing, please let us know. We don't mind being pointed out that we're wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, before we sign off, gents, we don't uh, we don't want this to be a um, we don't want us to do all the work, really, do we? We don't want to be an answer shop. Um, so you've got some recommendations for for sort of further or essential reading if you have a particular interest in in this area um things you want to sort of lean people towards if they if they want to look into this issue of engagement in more detail um where do you want to start should we should we start off with willingham then so so daniel t willingham um i I know that this is quite a famous book uh and it's called why don't students like school uh yeah that's it was published back in 2009, and I think he's writing a second edition uh, that's, that's due out shortly. And that really is a seminal work of cognitive science that really gets into this idea about how we learn and debunks a lot of the engagement stuff, the relevancy stuff, and also a lot of the VAK stuff. So that, that's an absolutely top place to start. It, do, it doesn't focus on gender, actually, but it's, it's so applicable um, to, to boys and underperforming boys that it's just an essential. Apart from um, a certain book with a coral-coloured cover, wouldn't you say that Willingham is is probably the book for anyone just starting out in teaching or, or in teaching to read, wouldn't you say? Yeah, not, not just anyone who's interested in teaching, anyone who's interested in how we learn it's just it's it's absolutely essential so yeah get get it if you've not got it get it um i think i think carolyn jackson is an academic um really worth um looking up so um her her paper laddishness as a self worth protection strategy um 2002 is is brilliant and and carolyn jackson uh is on Twitter. She's really, um, she's really willing to engage and help people out. Um, she's done a lot of work, lots and lots of work into um, laddishness and and all of those kind of things that teachers do to engage boys. Um, yeah, she's done a lot on that. Yeah, she's brilliant. We, we, we cite her a lot, don't we, in the book. It's worth giving Covington a look, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, again, he's someone who's who's, who's written a, a heck of a lot, uh, Martin Covington. I think, I think the one that, that, that I cite um, is from 1998, yeah. Competition, so The Will to Learn. It's good, yeah, the will to learn a guide to, for motivating young people, uh, which is a Cambridge University Press one. But there's loads of stuff that he, he's written a, 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 around motivation, and, and he's particularly big in this this idea of uh, self sabotage, self handicapping, and, and what boys do uh, when they feel as if they're going to fail at something. Uh, so yeah, he's he's brilliant on that. Uh, it's interesting as well. We were talking about VAK earlier, um, and you know we said that this 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 idea that's been debunked now. One thing that's really interesting, if you're interested in in the history of VAK, you go back to, to 2005, and the, there was a study uh, done by the Department for Education for uh, younger et al. And that is, is one of the first studies that, that debunks the idea of boys being kinesthetic learners. That's back in 2005. Wow. So this 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 thing that, that we're kind of wise to it now. And one of the things that they say is that, uh, if anything, the studies that they looked at showed that girls were more likely to be kinesthetic isn't that a bit of a mind blower? Yeah, they're the ones who should—they're the ones who should be roaming around, fondling and touching stuff during lessons. Gents, has been a hugely productive uh, hour or so. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your time. Um, next time we will be talking about uh, disadvantaged students. So if you have questions uh, regarding chapter two of the book about uh, how to approach disadvantaged students and, and, and everything that Matt writes about in that chapter please 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 drop us a tweet at uh, at boys don't try pod you can also follow Mark at Mr underscore English teach and and Matt at at positive teacher but it's very <laughs> Very, very yeah, imperative that I point out that positive is spelled P-O-S-I-T-I-V and teacher is spelled T-E-A-C-H-A. So let me just be very clear on that. You can follow me at at P-O-S-I-T-I-V-T-E-A-C-H-A. Not very catchy, but it's like a joke. You know, you have to explain it. Um, yeah, that uh, that handle doesn't seem like such a good idea anymore. No, it? no.
No. <laughs> um, you can follow me on at the Lip Boost uh, as well if you wish, um, and uh, have a go and have a listen to my English literature specific podcast uh, if you do so wish. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, that's been brilliant, and um, we'll do this again, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, go okay. on. See you later. <laughs>